Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I speak with learning specialist David Mokunis from Brandon Park Primary School. I first came across Dave through his webinars on retrieval, space, and interleaved practice, and he was one of the first teachers that I was aware of who was applying the principles of the science of learning in primary mathematics. In this conversation, we touch on that and explore a range of other topics, including why he thinks so many teachers have such a negative attitude towards teaching maths, what the key elements of his maths lessons are, and how to teach mixed ability classes. So, here is my conversation with David Morkunis. Gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, David Morkunis. His YouTube videos on daily reviews in primary mathematics have racked up thousands of views, and I look forward to digging into that, that and much more today. However, I better start by welcoming Dave to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. How are you, mate? Very well, Brendan. Very well. How are you? Yeah, awesome. Awesome. It's a school holiday, so we can't complain too much at the moment. Indeed. Are you able to just start by telling us a bit about your journey into the position that you were in today? I certainly can. Yeah, I, I'm a bit of a, I, I guess, like a late entry into the profession compared to some. So I uh, I did a, a commerce degree in my early 20s. I'm looking back, I'm not really sure why, but I just kind of thought it will make me employable. So the, the, I guess the goal is to... The goal was to get a job. And so I spent uh, a bit less than a year working for one of the big four accounting firms. I'll give your listeners a hint. It might be the one that's been in the Australian news a lot lately. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give that, um, leave that as a tease. But, and I was miserable in that job, right? So I didn't enjoy it at all. It didn't feel, feel altruistic. It wasn't something that I had any passion or interest in. So we had just bought a house, my, my future wife and I. I literally just settled on it a few weeks prior and I said to her, I need to quit this job. And she said, go ahead. So uh, I did and studied teaching. And I, I, I guess I had enough people over the years sort of tell me, hey, you, you'd make a good teacher. But I just thought, yeah, we'll give this a go. The holidays are good. <laughs> uh, yeah, why not uh, jump in? So yeah, did that, got my teaching degree at 30 and then wound up at Bentley West Primary School, which your listeners might know is a school that Stephen Cap ran that was very heavily influenced by Dr. Lorraine Hammond, Science of Learning, Science of Reading, all that fun stuff. And it's now run by Sarah Sohn, Victorian Teacher of the Year, Dyslexia Advocate, and just absolute uh, mastermind when it comes to learning difficulties. And yeah, so at the end of last year, after sort of six years at Bentley West, I moved over to Brandon Park Primary, so another science of learning, science of reading school. And my current role there is at a, as a learning specialist. So uh, I'm both in and out of the classroom. I teach uh, grade five a couple of days a week. And my role there is to sort of help staff development in, in maths. So a big part of that is developing a scope and sequence for foundation through to grade six and to sort of build collective efficacy among the, the teaching staff there. Awesome. So just kind of backtracking a bit there and, mm. you know, like looking at yourself as a student, were you, how, how was your experience? As a student in, yeah. in maths specifically, so I was that I was that kid that kind of arrived in primary school already being able to read and already being fairly numerate. Like I was obsessed with numbers as a kid. I, yeah. I have one of my earliest memories is being sort of walked down the street by my grandmother when I was like pre three or four and making her stop in front of every single house so she could read each house number to me. I, I was that kid, <laughs> very, very slightly or possibly massively autistic, but you know, that's okay. And yeah, so I... I don't remember a lot of my early maths education. Like I was fine, but I did a lot of maths outside of school. Like I was that kid who would, you know, do math sums for fun at home. And so I, I couldn't tell you, I, I do remember a lot of my classmates really struggling in maths. And I suspect it's because we, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we know how important stuff like review is and stuff like that. That wasn't happening when I was a kid. So no. if we I think about my schooling from 30 years ago, you know, we might touch subtraction for a week. In, in a like term one and then we might not hit that for another 18 months 
so it was kind of understandable that people were were, were floundering. But yeah, always loved maths and so thrilled to, to kind of be in a position now where I can kind of impart that that love for it onto my students as well. Yeah. And and what about how, you know, you, you mentioned that, that you started teaching a bit later on. Do you reckon that helped your kind of open-mindedness or your approach towards, you know, pedagogy and, and different ways of teaching? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Look, I... I, I won't uh, I won't mention where I studied because uh, yeah. we will probably have a fairly honest conversation about the current state of initial teacher education in Australia. I think hitting hitting teaching later than than normal. I guess like, you know, not being like a twenty two year old grad straight from high school into uni. I suppose yeah, it gave me a, a bit of perspective. Like I have used tenets from my commerce degree in teaching in that I. I do think about economics and by, by that I mean like behavioral economics, not market forces. But yeah. I do think a lot about opportunity cost and incentives, structures and stuff like that. In terms of pedagogy, look, I, I'm not ashamed to admit, Brendan, that I, I didn't have a clue when I graduated. Uh, if it wasn't for the fact that I wound up at Bentley West and was exposed to incredible teaching and evidence-based practice, I, I, I still probably wouldn't have much of a clue, to be fair. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and unfortunately, like, a lot of it does depend on you know a bit of luck of the draw doesn't it and in where you end up because sometimes we can't necessarily rely on what's happening in that initial teacher education space and and then you're just basically hoping that the school that you end up is able to kind of put you on the right path going forward yeah and i mean that's for that's for teachers you imagine the the anguish that, that parents and students have as well you know i think pam snow talks about postcode lottery mm. yeah hopefully you know we're we're planting the seeds that you know in an indeterminate period of time Hopefully every school you know, is, is uh, following the evidence and the parents don't have to stress as much. Yeah, so you've already mentioned how you, you kind of started off at the right sort of school, but were there any challenging situations that you faced either as a teacher or outside of teaching that afterwards kind of proved to be a great learning experience? Mm. So before I before I wound up at, at Bentley West, that was my first full-time gig. I, I did CRT, so I did relief teaching. I, I know it's called different things in different states I'm from Victoria, in case the listeners didn't know. I had, I had some wonderful experiences there. I didn't do it for too long, only about a term or so. But I had one day that was absolute shocker, absolute shocker. And it was as much my fault as anything else. So I got the call from my agency really early in the morning. They said, we have we have a, a class for you to go to in this school. School's in a bit of a rough area, so fairly low SES and some fairly complex family situations from, from some of the kids there. So went into a packed, packed grade six grade, 28 kids. I've never <laughs> met any of them before. And had a couple of like comments on the side from the office staff at the start of the day as well that suggested, hey, you might be, you might be in for it, dude. <laughs> and so I, I did just about everything wrong. Like, so I immediately raised my voice at them when they wouldn't settle. And so, you know, I kind of started at a 10 already. Yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you can't go from there. And like, so they know I'm a toothless tiger and it's 9.05. I had kids, you know, constantly out of their seats, chucking stuff around the room, using monstrous language. It was, it was really, really difficult. And to the point that I actually, I came home despondent. This was only about like six weeks into my career as a, as a teacher, I guess. I actually emailed yeah. one of my, my mentor teachers from placement and just like, I don't know if I can do this. Like this day yeah. was monstrous. And they always had to like talk me off the ledge, I guess, and be like, hey, like use this as, as, as fuel for perspective. So I... I'm really actually, I'm quite grateful that it happened because it is a really powerful perspective piece for me. Whenever I think I've had a bad day, I, I look back at that and sort of think, oh, you, you actually come a long way. And also, you know, my mentor gave me some tough love of like, right, what did you do? And I emailed them and they're like, right, well, all of that was terrible. And you know better, like, this is what you should have done instead. Yeah. So yeah, look, look, it gave me, gave me a lot of perspective of like, hey, you know, I was shocking back then. But these, these days, I don't have too many days like that, I guess. Yeah. All right. So looking back, what would you have done differently? Great question. So much. Yeah. So I, I would have, I would have been quicker. I don't know. Maybe this is the, the toxic masculinity part of my brain. I would have been quicker to ask for help because I was kind of determined of going in and being like, now nah, I've got this. It's fine. Mm. The 12 year olds, man, you got this. You're, you're two and a half times their age. Yeah. I, I would have, I would have asked for help earlier. I would have sought clarity on what the, like if there were any behavioral processes that I should be following, um, any like school-wide behavior models. And I wouldn't have, I uh, would have begun by, by raising my voice immediately. So maybe more of a gentle escalation. I think from, from there, something I've taken from that, like I, at the start of every school year, I, I sit my students down and we sort of have a, a, a fairly robust chat about what it means to be respectful because I think 
it's important for students to have that buy-in of like, hey, look, we're all we're all here to, to do a job. All right, we've got a thousand hours together this year, and it's important we we start on the right foot. Now, I perhaps went straight. I went straight into the learning too quickly, rather than being like, hey, you know, I know I'm not your regular teacher, but you know, we need to get through this together. So maybe calm the farm. Probably three words of advice I'd give to my 2016 self. Yeah, but you know, a couple of things that you touched on there. It also just highlights the importance of having that consistency across the school and and the the fact that the office ladies they knew that you were going into a tough tough class and so yeah. it, it, even even for an experienced teacher that, that probably would have been a pretty tough gig to go into and and so like I think there's a lot of groundwork that we can make as classroom teachers and as a, a school to support you know relief teachers or casual teachers coming in so that it's not such a, a big jump or you know they're not targeted by the, the individuals within that class but it, it's a it's a tough thing to change you know that whole culture stuff that we're talking about here mm. completely agree so look you know you've spoken already about how you've always had that kind of connection to mathematics and then you've been able to, to now teach it but why do you think so many teachers have such a negative attitude towards teaching mathematics yeah, it's it's something I have been involved in, in in lots of conversations about recently with 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 other teachers and educators. I so for your listeners' benefits, I'm I'm 37, so I'm like kind of smack bang in the middle of being a, a Gen Y or a millennial. My my gut feeling, and this is, I don't know if this has been tested or if there's any research to back this up, but my gut feeling says that my generation ourselves were not taught maths effectively. Uh, therefore, we have become uh, people who don't necessarily have the tools to be able to teach maths effectively ourselves. So I was not taught explicitly. I know that probably lots of my, you know, my peers probably were, but maybe not with the same level of rigor that we know needs to happen now. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one, Brendan. I, I hear from schools anecdotally that say that they've got teachers who will not teach certain year levels because they're worried about the rigor of their mathematics. Uh, and I, I kind of feel two ways about that. The 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 harsher side of my my psyche is kind of like, hey, that's not good enough. Like you're you're employed to be a teacher, you need to be able to teach every year level. But then the more compassionate side of it is like, well, if you haven't been given the tools to do that effectively, then I kind of understand where you're coming from. So it's sort of a it's a very tricky problem to solve. You know, I, I said part of my role this year is sort of building teacher efficacy. And teachers at my school currently, they're great math teachers, but there's always uh, room to improve. But yeah, I suppose it comes back to like, I think societally, like people talk about, oh, yeah, I'm just not a mass person. And I'd be really keen to explore why so many people believe that. Yeah. And and one of the funny things when, when people say they're not a maths person, it's because they, they, they tend to connect to the fact that they want to be developing their knowledge in maths, which is user-friendly or it's related to, to real life things. That's how they see mathematics or what it should be. And they've, so they've got this kind of romantic view of it as well. That's, that's one of the things that I find. And so one of the reasons why they say they're not a maths person is because they, they feel a lot of the maths that they learn at school didn't actually apply to their, their kind of real life. And, and so it was pointless in a way. Mm, yeah, I, I think I think there's I can see where they say that from a, from a secondary point of view. So if they're doing things like completing the square and then wondering themselves, when, when am I ever going to use this? Mm. Uh, I, I, I understand why they would say something like that. Like my, my expertise is all in primary. So, you know, most of the maths that we do is sort of fairly well applicable to the real, real world. But it's also, you know, it's sort of that cognitive rigor as well. Of like here is, a, here is something where you need to follow a series of steps in order and you're also doing mental computation for, for things like basic facts. You know, there are times in your life and in your workplace where you will need to do similar things. It may not be completing a square, but you might be doing, you know, some sort of financial accounting work, like similar to what I did, where you need similar skills. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one. It is an interesting one. And and I think what you, you said originally about how our experiences at school weren't necessarily positive ones. And so then naturally we're just not going to feel positively about that subject. Yeah. And if you haven't experienced success, then, yeah, you, you're not really going to either know how to teach it well or you're not going to feel like other students will will kind of build off your own enthusiasm and passion for the subject yeah if i can jump in that's i reckon that's a really great segue to talking about sort of the, the mass topic du jour at the moment which is talking about the idea of supposed mass anxiety mm. so to be to be clear i i'm not sold on the idea that there is a specific form of anxiety that relates 
just to mathematics. If you ask me, are people anxious about maths? Undoubtedly, of course they are. They are definitely anxious about maths, but I don't, I don't believe that there's a particular strand of anxiety that only raises its head during mathematics. I think it's a, you, you mentioned success and it's something that I've spoken about at, at length during conferences and things. Yeah, it's, I know from my own experience and from you know reading the work of Greg Ashman and a few other people as well, that motivation piece that kills, you know, let's call it mass anxiety just to, to be able, like, just to, to, to use the term, that the thing that kills mass anxiety is giving students success, which leads to them being motivated in order to achieve more success, right? So if you hit a student at their point of need, you actually give them the tools they need to, to solve a problem that's been dogging them, they're more likely to uh, change their outlook or their attitudes about maths themselves. You know, I, I, if you parachuted me, Brennan, into a year 11 German class, I would feel a lot of anxiety. We wouldn't call it German anxiety, would we? We, we, we wouldn't label it <laughs> at, at that particular way, right? I would feel that because I don't know if this is going to shock you. I don't know a word of German, right? And so if I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not receiving effective instruction, then of course that's going to cause anxiety. I suspect that's where the heart of it lies. Yeah, great response there. And I like that analogy because I think a lot of a lot of people, they, they want to try to stick it on a, a reason to do with certain pe- types of pedagogy. And yeah, it really is, it just comes back to, well, how, how are the children feeling right now? And that could be to do with anything really. Hmm. All right, so you've touched on a couple of things to do with the pedagogy behind your approach, but do you want to just give a bit of an outline on, on some of the things that kind of support what you're doing and, and what it might look like? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Bentley West Primary School and Brandon Park, so my current school and my previous school are both ADI schools, so I uh, use explicit direct instruction, which is a pedagogical model that it was, it's based on a book by Ibarra and Hollingsworth. I highly recommend your listeners check out if they haven't already. So the clue's in the name. It's a, an explicit model. It's not scripted like a DI, like a direct instruction, like Engelman's work, but it is sort of that gradual release of responsibility that I do, we do, you do, all that kind of fun stuff. So that's the, the pedagogical side. And then sort of more sort of theoretical side, I guess, is a lot of, you know, cognitive load theory, a lot of Kirchner, Sweller and Clark's work, all that fun stuff. You know, we, we know that for novice learners, uh, minimally guided, guided instruction doesn't work. Right, so we use an explicit approach. So that's that's definitely the, the side of the fence that I fall down on. And, and yeah, that's yeah. I'm rambling already, Brennan. Bad podcast, yes. <laughs> no, it's it's awesome. And and I think like one of the, the things that have kind of popped up a lot with people that I've spoken to has just been about like you've got this this framework where teachers have built up their knowledge on on kind of different I guess, versions of explicit instruction and then pulled out bits and pieces. So it doesn't necessarily, if you've if you've developed your knowledge on, you know, EDI, it doesn't mean that ev- absolutely everything you're following is that to a T. You know, th- there's going to be aspects that you pulled out, but then you're also using your pedagogical knowledge and your knowledge of cognitive load theory to, to continue to develop that as well. You know, sometimes when, when teachers first learn about these different approaches, they feel like they're going to be stuck in one way of doing things. Yeah, so I think it's important to highlight, you know, you've, you've mentioned EDI, cognitive load theory, and then also direct instruction as well. And it's just different methods that we're learning from. Yeah, yeah, it, completely true. Like, so at, at my time at, uh, at my last school, we were using EDI for, for the bulk of our lessons, but we also used Stone Mastery, which is a direct instruction program. We're using the writing revolution, both at, both at my previous and current school, but we, we're using it through the lens of EDI, I guess. And we were even experimenting with using McCowan's questioning the author method as well for, for class novels and things like that. So yeah, it's not, no one's saying to use EDI 100% of the time. Yeah, what you're saying rings true, Brennan. Awesome. And so how do you know it works? Great question, putting me on the spot. So look, the, the dispassionate answer, the, the objective answer is just look at the NAPLAN results. Like we, when we decided to go down EDI at my last school, those prep kids or foundations or kindergartens were the first year of public schooling, wherever you were listening, we tracked them and when they hit grade three, huge spike upwards. So the proof's in the pudding there, but that's, that's the dispassionate answer. But the, yeah, the, the slightly more emotional answer is, I know it works. And again, this is subjective, 
This is my lived experience though. Every year, Brandon and I get kids coming into my classroom that say, hate maths. And, you know, I do the, the classic teacher thing of overacting to that and being like, oh, you know, clutching my heart and being like, I can't believe you just said that. You hate maths. <laughs> my goodness. And I always make them a promise. So I say, look, at the end of the school year, I'm not going to promise that maths will be your favourite subject, but I guarantee you won't hate it anymore. I know that this approach works because those students that I, I work with, when I meet them at their point of need, uh, I teach them according to what the science says works. So teach them explicitly, expose them to pre-skills before giving them skills you know, and making sure everything iterates on itself using a really robust scope and sequence. Those students fly, you know, they, they come in with limited skills and they leave my year level able to do the maths, right? And those students more often than not tell me that maths is their favorite class. So that's the, that's the more emotion, emotional answer, I guess. Yeah, awesome. And, and I think it's a, a testament to your own teaching that you're able to, to get that. And and what I'm kind of feeling is that teachers at your school, they're probably feeding off your, your vibe and your energy and and, and general knowledge of, of teaching mathematics effectively. And, and I can see how that would have an effect across the school as well. So yeah, look, I'll, I'll be interested to see how Brandon Park's maths results turn out in a couple of years time. And we can have another chat then. <laughs> Me too, Brandon. No, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. And so, one of the, the the things that I see happening a lot with with teachers who first engage with the science of reading is they they develop their knowledge, they start applying things in the classroom, and then they start to ask questions around like, okay, so what does this look like in other subjects? You know, so they might you know develop their knowledge in in the science of learning in general. Then they might look at things like cognitive load theory and look at you know the, the simple memory model and um, retrieval practice. And and then they start to ask questions. Okay, so specific subjects. So generally, after English, the next one in line will be mathematics. And so they they want to know what does this look like in mathematics. And I think that's where a lot of teachers are at at the moment. So can you just describe like some of the, the considerations that you've made when designing a primary maths curriculum? Yeah, yeah. So just a, a quick caveat, I'm still, I would not consider myself an expert in developing a curriculum. So my last school, we did something called the low variance curriculum. I wasn't involved in building the initial version of it, but I was involved in iterating at the year level I was teaching in. So if we talk about considerations when designing a curriculum, I think the 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 main hook, like the elevator pitches in the name uh, of a low variance curriculum, is something that I think Reid spoke to you about during your, your interview with him, making sure that across year levels and within year levels, there's a minimal variance because we know that, that we know that it has sort of an inverse relationship to student outcomes. So the more variance, the, the more scattered and the worse the, the student outcomes are. I also talked to my, my staff about making you know, lessons like CRT proof so that when relief teachers come in, everything's as consistent as possible. But for the, for the curriculum itself, I, I think we'd probably be in agreement, Brendan, there's not a lot of rigor in the Australian maths curriculum as it stands. So we, we've built that out in a way that, you know, we've taken curriculum content descriptors and spun them out into discrete learning objectives. And from there sort of slotted them in a sequence that we think makes sense from, from F to six. I say we've made past tense, but it's obviously a process that I'm still doing. It's a big part of my, my role this year. It's doing things like making sure that if I'm teaching grade two, I know that the grade one students coming up have been exposed to and have been taught certain concepts that they need that I'm about to, to introduce them to. So if I'm a grade two teacher and the big lesson that I think in grade two would be subtraction with renaming, I can assume that my students in grade one at, by the end of the school year have had lots of experience with subtraction without renaming and you know, using place value charts because I'm going to use the same place value charts in grade two. The only thing I'm going to change is the context by introducing that renaming language. So making everything iterative and, and built on previous concepts, I think is, is crucial. And of course, building in time for regular review. Yeah, awesome. And, and like just starting right from the start then, what sorts of things should we be really focusing on in the early years? Right, so I'm going I'm to hold this up, which I realise does not play for an audio podcast, but you're for your benefit. Yeah. I've got a copy in my hands of George Booker's Teaching Primary Mathematics, which you've heard me say um, at conferences, Brennan, is my absolute Bible when it comes to, to maths planning. So in terms of the early years, and our, our foundation team this year are just like... They're off to the races. It's, it's, it's incredible to see. To begin with, a lot of you know, early number sense, right? Using, I listened to your episode with, with Kieran Mackle about the concrete pictorial abstract pathway. So 
Naturally, we would use more concrete materials in the early years. But like he said, it's not a continuum. You, know, you don't expect to go from, from one mode to another. So to begin with, it's using tense frames and, and building numbers out, doing a, a lesson on zero as well, because we all love zero. Zero is so important. And yeah, by the end of foundation, hopefully they've had experience. They should be pretty comfortable making numbers and reading numbers all the way up to 99 or even to 100 and being exposed to sort of early additive thinking as well. So that, that addition and subtraction strand. So we're big on making numbers with concrete representations and then matching them to their symbolic representations. Um, and in the sort of the algorithmic sense, in the addition sense, we're big on beginning with number stories as well. So I have three oranges, I got four more, how many do I have all together, that sort of stuff. And uh, linking that, then using tense frames and then eventually linking that to algorithmic representations. That would be what foundation mostly looks like. Yeah, so just kind of getting into the nitty gritty, and I know that you're not teaching the early years at the moment but mm -hmm. where like one of the questions i'll get asked a lot from teachers is okay so where does the fun stuff fit into it you know for, for the you know and and that's what they'll say they'll say where does the fun stuff fit into it what what's your response to that oh i'd ask them what that means what, yeah. what, what do you mean by fun stuff if they're talking about games, in fact, we use lots of them. So a really great one is sort of like the make to 10 game. So you've got two students with a tense frame and you have uh, a 10 slider die that goes from zero to nine. Our students get to take turns rolling. And so our first student rolls a three, they put three counters on their 10 frame. Um, and it's the first student who lands exactly on 10 uh, that wins. So it's a really great sort of consolidation of the, the 10 ones make one 10 framework or, or idea, which is crucially important. So renaming numbers is crucially important. Um, like I would argue that, and again, this might be my slightly neurodivergent brain, Brendan, I would argue that maths in of itself, when you can do it, is actually quite fun without the need to, to play games and stuff like that. But yeah, there are, there are lots of chances to play games that also serve as, as great little learning tasks in the, the early years, but not before you know doing a proper concept development first. You're not going to introduce the concept of 10 with a game. You know, once you've introduced the concept and you've checked for understanding, that's when you might introduce them to a game. Yeah, okay. So it comes in as a con consolidation activity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and the other thing that you said that that some teachers might find a, a little bit controversial is is you know um, going all the way up to nine. What's what's your reasoning behind that? Well, it's we know I know from my experience that students are more than capable of doing it. It's you know it needs to be scaffolded, obviously, and great care needs to be needs to be taken to to sequence it properly. The sequence that Booker suggests on first reading sounds quite unusual, but there's actually a method to their madness. So for example, actually hit teen numbers last. So they go mm. from single digit to 10, then from 20 to 99, and then back to teen numbers. Because if you think about it, a number like 14, the place value is the wrong way around. Mm. So we're, we're hitting the ones and then the tens. So we've, we've done it. So I mean, at the time we're speaking, Brennan, it's term two holidays for both of us. Our foundation students have already done it, so they can make every two-digit number. Now, granted, my school is fairly high SES background and you know highly educated parents, that sort of thing, so take what I say with a grain of salt, obviously. But that's sort of proof, if we can do it in two terms, I'd say the average school could do it in four pretty comfortably. Mm. It's about using you know those concrete representations early on. Tense frames are really good. Bundling sticks are incredible as well. They're, they're probably underused in Australia, I'd say. Most people go from tense frames straight to, to MAB or base 10 blocks. But we find base 10 is not very useful until you hit three-digit numbers because the renaming process is fiddlier. Whereas, whereas with bundling sticks, you've got 10 bundling sticks with uh, sort of a hair tie or a uh, rubber band on them. Take the rubber band off, bang, you've got 10 ones. So yeah, using that and matching them to their symbolic representations is how we would go all the way up to 99. Awesome. Yeah. And you know, when you mentioned the teens there, it, uh, it reminded me of my conversation with Karen Xanatopoulos. And, and she spoke about how phonological awareness is actually like such a great predictor for mathematics success later on, purely because, and, and that was the, the example there that she gave of if a, a lot of early learners, they're not actually able to distinguish between a number like 14 and 40. They don't hear mm. that the, the teen part at the end. And so they, they, yeah, they make a lot of mistakes. There. And so it makes a lot of sense when you talk about that, you know, the order that you, you learn the numbers in, because they're able to actually, yeah, learn what these numbers actually represent first before what the names necessarily are. 
yeah, and then to be clear, like we, we would do things like rote counting up to 20 and that sort of thing anyway. So they'll be exposed to that language. And it's, it's likely that most five and six year olds probably have, they've, they've probably heard 12 before, right? Yes. But I'm talking about, you know, introducing them in a, a sort of a systematic way. Mm. Cool. All right. So looking at your, your maths lesson in general, what are some of the key elements of your, your maths block? You know, how long does it go for? What sorts of things are included in it? You know, how does that vary from, from week to week? So, so I think the minimum amount of time you should be devoting to maths, absolute bedrock, could be an hour a day. I was lucky my last school it was 90 minutes, which was really, really useful. Most schools I'm hoping hit at least now. Anything less than that, I, I would be questioning what is being used in that time that could be better spent in maths. It was up to me, Brennan, four hours a day. No, uh, that'd, be, that'd be glorious in a perfect world. So there are three elements to the maths block at my current school. The first is the lesson where we introduce uh, new skills and concepts. Um, and, you know, that's built on uh, based on our scope and sequence and our uh, curriculum. Then we have the daily review, something I, I've spoken about at length in the past, um, where we bring back previously taught content. Um, so I should say, sorry, time-wise, uh, our blocks vary at Brandon Park. They're, they're anywhere from sort of uh, between 60 to about 80 minutes. So a lesson would go for sort of 30 to 45 at the top end, review about 20 or so. And then we yeah. also use the New Waves math, uh, Mental Math Book, which is just essentially like quizzes every day. And they're really useful in that they cover questions from all three strands and we use them as sort of a teacher modeling thing most days. So we, we do a lot of think alouds of, of showing students how we would solve particular problems. It's almost like a stopgap. It's for the things that we might not hit in review because perhaps we haven't taught them yet but they're expected to know. So those three elements, the, the lesson, the review, and the, the new ways book. Our new ways is about 10 minutes. All right. So I know that you've spoken a lot about reviews in the past, but mm -hmm. for those that haven't heard you somehow, I don't know, maybe they're living under a rock, but can you just yeah go over like some of the key aspects of a daily review, you know, like what, what to include, how you've kind of organized your space practice around it, and yeah, any, any other considerations that need to be made? Yeah, of course. So the, the, the mass review itself, so we, we are slaves to PowerPoint at my school. So we build our PowerPoint decks based on the, the previously taught lessons. So essentially our examples from our lessons go into review. So about 20 to 30 minutes a day, as often as possible. Um, my last school was five times a week. My current school, it's, it's closer to about three. We're trying to, to squeeze more in. So what should go into a mass review is essentially anything that as a teacher, you are concerned that the students may forget or that you feel the students need more practice in. So there are a few non-negotiables. So I teach, Brenda, I teach grade five this year. So in our grade five maths reviews, every single time we start with a multiplication sheet. So that's just a multiplication grid. It is a controversial thing coming up. It is a timed test. I shouldn't call it a test really, but it is timed. So it's, yeah. it's three minutes for students to get as much of it done as possible, just so some fluency practice. So that's a non-negotiable that goes in every day. Some form of standard algorithm work. Generally so just, by group, just going, going back to you. So when you time it, are you are you recording like each student or is it just for their own kind of knowledge to see where they get up to in a certain amount of time? Sort of both, I guess. We, we did do yeah. an inquiry cycle uh, recently where we wanted to to sort of drill down and figure out which of our students needed more practice with their multiplication facts. So we didn't record them every day because that's, that's fairly arduous and, and not as useful. But we sort of, we targeted maybe across the cohort about a dozen students or so. And we took their scores sort of once a week to, to chart their growth from there. So yeah, the... the the, the students know, and this is a big part of like the, the teacher talk piece of like, hey, it's timed, but that doesn't matter. Like, just try your best. No one's going to hassle you if, you if you get something wrong or if you don't finish. And so we only introduced those at the start of term two, but we use them extensively at Bentley West and already a huge, huge growth, which is great. Yeah. We've been using Brad Wynn's suggestion from Docklands. We've been using Time Stable Rockstars as well. has been very useful for that too. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Bruno, Bruno Reddy, he's actually coming to Australia in a couple of months. Yeah, so he's, he's someone that, so he's a CEO of, of Times Tables Rockstars. Exciting. Awesome. Yeah, I'll tee up a, a chat with him. Or Yeah, that'd be, I'll be listening to that for sure. Um, so yeah, from, from there, as I said, so normally some for algorithm work, yeah. sorry, some standard algorithm work. So yeah. generally by grade five, we don't really need to touch addition too much or subtraction, to be honest. So most of it is long form multiplication and then either long or short division. So those mm -hmm. need to go in every day. Long and short division and long form multiplication are complex enough that students need plenty of practicing. But then from there, it, it's sort of a mixture, Brennan, of things we've taught in the last week, last month, last term, potentially even things that they've been taught in grade four that we won't be covering in lessons in grade five 
And so, yeah, from like a 20 minute mass review, anywhere from sort of eight to 12 topics, really quick rapid fire. And the students know the routines, look, mini whiteboards are used extensively and it, it's not an expectation that every kid does every question. So we build in plenty of differentiation. So, you know, we've got lots of hard problems for the, for the kids who can do that, but otherwise just minimum expected effort is that you give everything a go. Yeah. Okay. So you, you've got um, mini whiteboards being used. Are they on the floor? Are they seated? Is it kind of up to the teacher and... and... Yeah, yeah all... we haven't we haven't codified that. I guess I mean by grade yeah. five, if you asked them to come to the floor, there'd probably be some sort of a right. They don't like coming to the floor, <laughs> so we we do it all at our desks. Yeah, and then so are they doing all of it on their mini whiteboards, or is some of it on paper as well, or books? Yeah, so the, the multiplication grid that starts on paper, everything yeah. else is everything else is mini whiteboards, or it's an or it's like an oral or choral response as well. So there's something like angle types. For example, I've got some flashcards that just have an angle without giving them any more information and they need to classify it. So they need to call out acute or obtuse or something. But yeah, so a mixture of that stuff and uh, more application-focused stuff that they need to write down. Yeah, okay. And, and so you mentioned the pace is pretty quick throughout the whole thing. So these mm -hmm. things, like you're trying to build up that that automaticity in... Yeah, um, yeah. For, for some stuff, definitely. If we're going to chant uh, a series of multiplication facts, like that's 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 key. But yeah, the, the quick pace, it's something I get uh, pushed back on occasionally. This is where my, this is where my economics mind comes in. It's, a, it's an opportunity cost thing. We need to cover as much as we can in those reviews. So we, we don't have time. It's for two reasons. One is that we don't have time to do 45-minute mass reviews. And the second reason is like sort of maximizing time on task. Yeah. You know, so it's actually a really good classroom management strategy. If you do not have stuff for your more capable students to get on with and they finish everything in 10 seconds that's when you're going to start getting the the chatter and the, the misbehavior and that sort of thing yeah and, and if you're doing your check for understandings and you're saying all right i haven't quite got 80 percent, maybe 50 60 percent what are you doing then Great question. So it's it's something we would feed back to our team and sort of say, hey, my, my kids bomb this in review. Is it worth a, normally we would put it in review more often, maybe slow down and do a tiny reteach. If it was really drastic, we might teach the whole lesson again, but that's sort of a last resort. It probably depends on what the what the mistake is. If it's a misconception that the whole grade's having that I know I can correct in 30 seconds, I will just very quickly, you know, turn to my whiteboard and be like, right, this is your error in thinking. This is what we need to do instead. And then perhaps give them another example question. But you've just made me think, Brent, it's not something that's perhaps codified across the school. So it's maybe something that's worth uh, diving into with my leadership team. Yeah, cool. All right. And so then you go into your new waves, just, and, and like there's a lot of different, you know, organizations that offer that sort of book. Are you getting them to answer questions? based on things that they've already been taught or will they come across some things that haven't been taught yet? No, so New Waves is split up into, into weeks and on a Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of each week, it's entirely teacher modelled. So students don't get to do any independent practice. They, they're sitting there with their pencils. At the start of the year, I'll make them put their pencils down between each question. Otherwise, they will quickly try and work ahead. And essentially, the idea is to model every question. So generally throughout and this it's not doesn't work every week but generally throughout the week normally similar concepts are introduced so by thursday and friday when they're doing it independently they've hopefully had a few exposures to the same concept in you know different questions so like generally question one in a lot of weeks from the book that i am on is is time related so it might be that monday tuesday wednesday they've had to read an analog clock and then the thursday question is similar it just might be you know more challenging and that it could be you know, like, I don't know, big hand point at the seven or something, Brendan. Yeah. And so that way they've, they've been exposed to strategies informally for a few times and they've had that benefit of the teacher model and then hopefully they can they can come to the table. It doesn't work perfectly, but uh, it works fairly well. Yeah, okay. So that's a, a kind of gradual release of responsibility over the week then that mm -hmm. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And so how have you supported teachers in like teaching that part of it properly? Yeah, so that's been a, a, a big part of my role this year. So this is the first year that we've rolled out new waves sort of sort of properly across the school. So I I just hopped up and modeled it at a at a staff meeting and so I said, look, these are our expectations. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you should be doing it with the students. This is what that looks like. And so did it. I'm I'm a real scumbag during staff meetings, Brennan, because I make them do exactly the same engagement norms that my students would do. Yeah. So they have to read with me. I've got every single name in an app. And so I select them randomly for non-volunteers, the whole shebang. So we we treat it just like a regular lesson. And and then from there, you know, if teachers have questions, I've also gone in and modeled it for for a few classes as well. 
Yeah, yeah, cool. Because I think like that's kind of an aspect that we've got to keep developing and working on because like you like you mentioned before if they haven't learned it properly through their own experience or, or through going to university then where are they going to get this content knowledge from and so yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah it, it's a huge it's a huge thing there like it, it keeps me up at night honestly like yeah when we're talking about next term me doing some quick features at the start of every staff meeting like five to ten minutes because you, you you're right Brent. you just cannot assume that the teachers have the knowledge and we know they are absolutely slammed they are worked off their feet when are they going to have the time to upskill so yeah anything we can do as sort of middle leaders to to kind of get them there is worthwhile yeah and and like you've already touched on today it's so complex and nuanced, you know, the, the pedagogical content knowledge that you need for mathematics, you, you need to understand, all right, well, what are the, the common misconceptions? What, what's that prerequisite knowledge? I think like that's a massive one as well, which can often be underestimated is if they haven't got that prerequisite knowledge and, and if you haven't got that kind of low variance curriculum, that's probably where you're going to have to start. And yeah, if you don't know what that should be, you might not know how to address that or or why your students are getting things wrong in the first place. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I, for for the the student side of the piece, like the the classic example I try and use is long form multiplication and and just sort of telling teachers, look, if your student doesn't have their multiplication facts internalised, then they've got no chance. Like the, the, the cognitive load shoots through the roof, right? Which is why we give our students a grid. But the same is true for the teachers. If, if they're worried about the content knowledge, if they're not sure, you know, they don't know how to convert a mixed number to an improper fraction, for example, then we can't expect them to teach a, a, an explicit lesson on that because uh, to be focused on the pedagogical norms and, you know, am I checking for understanding that sort of thing, while at the same time trying to check, well, do I actually have this concept correct myself? Mm. Same deal. The cognitive load just shoots through the roof. So, yeah, we have to get both sides right, hopefully, before they step into the classroom. Easier said yeah. than done. Cool. Okay, so we've, we've spoken a bit about, like, developing that number sense in the early years. So now... As we kind of move along the primary years and we're trying to develop that fluency in basic maths facts, you know, so we're talking about addition, subtraction, multiplication and division. What are some strategies that teachers can use to develop that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It's something I'm still learning about and still upskilling in because most of my uh, experience has been with the middle to upper years. And I've had the luxury that most of the students coming up have already known their facts. So yep. Lots of reading this year. In the addition space, uh, and when I say addition, I'm talking about the subtraction facts as well because they're just uh, the inverse of each other. What we're starting to do with our foundation kids from next term, uh, this is ripped off straight from Booker. So we introduced the adding one, adding two, and adding three. So doing lots of work on that, modelling using tens frames. That will get you, uh, between those, adding one, two, and three, and then also the adding zero, that will get you almost half of your addition facts. If we're talking about plus zero to plus 10. From there, doubles and near doubles gets you a lot of the way, a lot of the way, I'm mixing my, my metaphors, Brandon, uh, gets you most of the rest of the way there. There we go. Got to slow down more goodness. And then making 10 for the, the trickier ones. Think something like an eight plus four is introducing the bridge to 10 strategy. And again, using tense frames often this time, if the totals above 10 using two tense frames and using two yeah. different colored counters, that's how we build the, the facts to begin with. And then smashing them in review. Tons of flashcards, giving them as much opportunity as possible. If I was doing prep or grade one or grade two mass reviews, addition and subtraction facts, by the time they've been exposed to them, that would be a non-negotiable every day as, as often as possible. Multiplication, we build our understanding of multiplication based on arrays. And again, when I'm talking about multiplication, I'll talk about division as well. Same deal. A lot of the heavy lifting in multiplication comes from reciprocals. So people see a grid of 10 by 10 and they think, oh, I've got 100 facts to learn. No, of course not. You've got 50 to learn. And some of those are fairly basic. So if we do the doubles work with addition, then that's the two's done, right? Mm. If you're doing a lot of analog clock work, that's your fives, right? The tens are fairly self-explanatory. From there, it's about burning arrays. So threes, fours, nines are lots of tricks for that sort of thing. By the time you get to the ones that freak people out, which are generally the sevens and eights, you've actually only got four facts left to learn. And those tend to be done again with arrays. And from there, at the risk of sounding like a broken down record already, just smashing them in review. So uh, as much chance as, as possible. You know, reading them forwards and backwards is, you know, it's of limited use. But 
uh, something that uh, a colleague said to me recently is times tables are not the job for the back of the toilet door, <laughs> which I, I love because you can't argue that they know them until they can retrieve them in random order, right? So, you know, there is, there are, I guess there's a place to chant them uh, occasionally. And actually we do as part of our mass review, but really giving them opportunities to retrieve facts in random, yeah, in random order is, is how you're going to know whether they're actually learned. Yeah, look, one of the things that you were speaking about then, it just made me think about when we're developing our curriculum, you know, like how important it is to to wait for that kind of mastery of, of understanding the concept before you move on versus teaching it and then you're going to smash it in reviews so we can move on. What, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, there, there's, there's a tension there, isn't there? It's that, I guess, the, the breadth versus depth idea. It's, it's a tricky one, Brennan. It's probably, there's probably something that has a beautiful Goldilocks zone that I have not yet discovered. I tend to be of the opinion of teach it once and put it in review unless kids really aren't getting it. It doesn't always work. I had a situation with a year level last term where we, we tried something that was fairly difficult for students of that age. And it was an absolute, it was a, it was a bomb. And so we, we've had to go back to the drawing board and not only reteach that, but actually change the scope of the lesson as well. I, I think a scope and sequence is really useful, but obviously it needs to be adaptable as well. So you have to have the flexibility of being able to say, or maybe even the expertise to say, yes, I think with review we'll get there. Or you know, if we've already gotten there, then review is just consolidation. Or saying, right, actually this was a this was a burning dumpster fire. We need to to reteach. Yeah, it's tricky. You put me on the spot there, man. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's it's obviously something that I've been thinking a lot about as well, and I'm, I'm constantly mm-hmm. kind of changing my mind about like, oh, you know, how how quickly we should be moving through things versus, you know, how we kind of build that curriculum from term to term, year to year, sort of thing. Yeah, so it's, I'm, I'm, I'm I guess we just got to keep working at it, and 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 I think it's a lot of it. It's um, contextual as well, and dependent on. How, how many maths lessons you're getting throughout the week, you know, what they're kind of coming into the the level of teacher knowledge and teaching it properly as well. Yeah, mm. interesting. <laughs> All right. So, look, we know that mathematics is highly hierarchical, but most classrooms consist of mixed abilities. How can teachers best cater for this? So might be the most common question I get asked whenever I do a talk. Like you, you were there. Um, I recently spoke at a conference and you were kind enough to be in the audience for it. So you heard the Q&A. I wonder if you remember the, the teacher that said that they've got nine years worth of ability levels in the yes. one grade. Yeah, so I almost, I'm not asking. <laughs> I almost fell over. Like, how? Like, and, and she's like, what do I do? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. Nine <laughs> years. So I, I think she was an upper years primary teacher. So, so anywhere from sort of foundation up to year nine or so within a single grade, which just sounds like it just sounds almost like an insurmountable challenge right my 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 first piece of advice doesn't help a teacher like that in the here and now but it does help in the future and that is to get your tier one instruction right Mm. and it's the same thing that i think most science of reading advocates would talk about in the reading space you need to get your tier one right and that will solve you know the bulk of those sorts of issues something that uh, i'm giving him a shout out ethan ford who's a uh, who is a teacher at uh, bentley west a, a, an absolute unit he's terrific he has this idea of floors no ceilings so there's a minimum expected effort that i want all students to get to but from there the sky's the limit so if i'm teaching if I'm teaching two by one digit multiplication, you know, perhaps I'm in grade three or grade four and, and teaching that lesson, my minimum expected effort is I want by the end of the lesson as many students as possible to be able to solve two by one digit multiplication problems properly. But built into that lesson, I will have two by two digit, three by two, three by three. I will have some two by ones with decimals. I'll have some worded problems. I'll have some worded problems with erroneous information in them. And that way I'm catering hopefully to the, you know, the, the, the top end of town as well. Yeah. Okay. So it, just to, to recap on what you're saying there. So make sure that tier one is is right, mm-hmm. and then the floor to ceiling means that you're you're basically giving the bare minimum that you want students to achieve, and then you're also allowing for those who are more capable to also be working to the best of their ability as well. Yeah, using the, the the same concept or skill, right? So every student in the grade is still doing some form of long-form multiplication. It's just that it ramps up in complexity. What we don't want to get into a situation with is, is you know, talking about the Matthew effect and a lot of a lot of Australian schools do this, Brendan, of streaming their mass classes. 
yeah. think that might also be a symptom of not having the tier one solid. Uh, yeah. I'm all for mass intervention if, if there's a need for it. And of, of course, I'm a, I'm a fierce advocate of giving students the scaffolds they need. You know, we talked about the example before of giving students a multiplication grid. I don't know the facts for a lesson like that. But I, I want to avoid yeah, situations where the rich get richer and the, the poor get poorer. Yeah. And I think, you know, some sometimes the, the tiered classes, they come into it when you're using the textbooks. And so then the teachers, they, they're, they're following the textbook and so they feel like, all right, I, I can only teach the kids that are up to this textbook. What, what would you kind of say to that? Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a fan of textbooks. They're not really given a lot of love in the primary space, but obviously yeah. they're used extensively throughout high school. Yeah, yeah it, could, it could be a problem with design. Uh, it could be simply that the continuum or the, the ramp of difficulty in a particular exercise is just not what it needs to be. Yeah, it's tricky, man. I'm not, I'm not high school wired, so I don't have as much experience with them. I, I, in in of themselves, they're useful, but perhaps those examples maybe they're not, they're not designed as well as they could be. Mm. That's the one reason why we tend to design all of our stuff in house. Yeah, where does where does problem solving fit into it? Ah, uh, I knew you were going to ask this. Problem solving, like it's like the it's the capstone, isn't it? Like it's like you know, if comprehension is the end goal of reading, then problem solving, of course, it's the end goal of mathematics. So it's it's something that I uh, I am thinking about how to to include. We do a lot of uh, ad hoc problem solving. We, we put problem solving example questions in every mass review, and they've all got uh, worked out solutions. There's a, a lot of chance for, to do that throughout new ways and stuff like that as well. And we do try and build in a lot of worded problems throughout most of our lessons. So if, if we're doing a lesson on area, for example, it might be a lot of pictures of squares and rectangles and triangles, but then moving on to, to sort of worded problems. Yeah, it, it's something that we will build into our scope and sequence eventually. It's been put on the back burner for the moment because we need, kind of need to get the fundamentals correct. First, but my last school, we used the uh, Singapore bar model quite extensively. And, and that's a, a fairly useful framework for, for questions, generally the ones that involve for operations, but it can be useful for, for fraction stuff too. I'm rambling again, Brendan. Uh, oh, well, why don't you touch on that a bit? Because I know that it's something which is starting to come into Australian classrooms, but it's probably still not used as extensively as it could be, or you know, with, with teachers having the, the actual knowledge on what they can be using it for. Yeah, I think that's the that's the piece. It, yeah. It's it is it's quite elegant when you understand it, but can be also fairly intimidating to begin with because it's a representation in mass that, that people may not be entirely used to. So I think the, the first piece would be that collective efficacy of the teachers. So building that, that, building that you know, I think Steph Lee from, from Serpentine has said that they're doing like a practice problem at the start of every staff meeting, which is just a, a beautiful idea. Yeah, so we're, we're going to most likely use uh, a bar model uh, approach at Brandon Park, I would say, and that will lend itself really nicely to sort of the part-part-whole representations that we're already doing in the younger years. So introducing to students the idea of an addition sum being you've got two parts and we're trying to get the whole and then swapping that for subtraction and saying, well, we've got the whole in one of the parts, we need the other part. And then linking that to a representation. So similar to sort of like number bonds and then making that bridge or showing them the connection between a number bond and a bar model representation, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, definitely. And, and so what are some other ways that we can use bar models? Yeah, so we use them a lot in, I used to be a grade four teacher at my last school. We use them a lot with, with fractions. So fraction representations are very useful, especially fractions for collection as well. So if I have, if I'm trying to figure out uh, three sevenths of 84, for example, I can draw uh, a horizontal bar and segment it into seven equal parts. I know that the total is 84, I can shade three of those parts. So the bar model tells me if I've got equal parts and a, a whole, I'm looking at division first because I want to figure out the total of one equal part. So divide by seven and then take that and multiply by three. So a bit to get the students' heads around, but plenty of practice. So a lot of explicit teaching of the language and of, of the part whole representations. So I got in the habit when I was teaching this stuff of saying, right, we've got a whole, we've got even equal parts, what do we need to do? And uh, hoping the students say divide, but it's difficult. Problem solving is uh, a hard nut to crack. Yeah. And so that's kind of next on the agenda for, for the things that you're going to be looking at. Yeah, for sure. All right. So 
looking forward into your current role and and you know you've already mentioned a, a few things that you're doing but how how are you supporting staff in developing their own classroom practice and you know are you just focused on mathematics or are you also looking at some other teaching strategies in general yeah so i was brought in as the learning specialist hyphen maths that was my my position but fairly quickly realized that there is a, a, an opportunity to sort of broaden that scope Something that I heard Ollie Lovell say on his Craig Barton podcast about instructional coaching recently is talking about sort of that bedrock of, you know, other students paying attention and then looking at your pedagogy and then looking at the sort of lesson structure from there. So instructional coaching is part of my role. So I've been going into two classrooms and helping not only with modeling maths instruction or observing teachers teach maths, but also EDI norms as well. So explicit direction instruction, engagement norms and sort of the tenets of that and helping with classroom management stuff as well. Because um, like most schools, we've got plenty of graduate teachers who are um, keen for, for helping those areas too. Yeah. And so have you got like a bit of a structure in place or process or is it at the moment you're just kind of working out um, how it's all going to yeah, it's, it's still early days. Um, yeah. in, yes, it's definitely something that I'm keen to to codify. And I really enjoyed, I, I saw Bron Ryrie Jones speak recently at Research Ed in, in Ballarat. I've, I've actually had, I've worked with her before about the instructional playbook that they've got at Docklands, which I love. And a great chance for me to use my favourite quote, which is good teachers create, great teachers steal. So I'm stealing <laughs> that idea immediately. And I'm totally keen to, to introduce an instructional playbook at uh, our school as well. But yeah, an instructional coaching model, it's Something that probably needs some energy spent on it to to kind of codify you know what what's its purpose and how's it going to look at the moment it's been pretty ad hoc a lot of me sitting in planning meetings and and sort of talking about you know things that are coming up in the mass curriculum and saying well this is how i would teach this and then that's the planning side and then the the, the teaching side going in as i said and, and, and modeling for for teachers when they're keen yeah you know like i'm i'm in a similar role to you i'm delivering a lot of pl and supporting teachers in the classroom and one of the, the things that i've i've kind of just been um I guess really focusing on lately is making sure that like the PL or the knowledge building that you you offer actually leads to changes in teachers' classroom practice. What sorts of things have you done to ensure that? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So um, the first session I ran for the whole staff this year was a session on cognitive load theory. And so I, at the end of it, the the independent practice, because I structured it like an EDI lesson, the independent practice was to, to chat within the team about things that you can change and then to feed back to me just by writing me an email. Um, and so I heard from teachers immediately, a lot of the stuff I talked about with extraneous load was things about, you know, keeping your slides clean and things like that. And heard from plenty of teachers who already said, look, we've gone through lessons and, and gotten rid of the cruft. Then my following session, I actually had them feed back to me again. So I said, right, we'll call it activating prior knowledge. It wasn't really. Um, but, you know, speak to your team and then show some non-volunteers to share how they've been implementing it. Not perfect. Probably needs to be a bit more structured, but yeah. Yeah. And did you pick up some misconceptions on when you're doing something like that? No, not for that particular one. Uh, must yeah. be because my session was so crack hot. So, <laughs> so, so, yeah. so perfect, Brennan. The, uh, um, yeah, the EDI norms are working. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> it works for a reason, bro. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like I, I didn't notice any for, for that. There, there have been occasions of misconceptions um, among perhaps some some tenets of EDI. We're still fairly new using it compared to some other schools. Um, I, I can't pinpoint any examples though, but there have been a few times where I'm about to correct people and be like, actually, that's not quite what we're after here. Yeah, and and you know, you you've touched on a few things with uh, staff culture at Brandon Park and uh, Bentley West, and it seems like you know you, you you've been in pretty lucky situations with, with right. staff, you know, already you on are board. So right. Yeah, you are but, so um, right. Yeah. But what like what sorts of things are you working on at the moment to to con- continue to build that collective efficacy? Yeah, so um, a big part of the, of the piece is the, uh, the the scope and sequence. So there's two sides of the coin, right? One's the curriculum um, and the other one is the, the, the teaching itself. Um, so I'm I'm mostly in charge of, of doing the curriculum. I have had teachers brought in. I, I've got an, an exceptional teacher in foundation this year who's um, helped me by creating the scope and sequence there. Um, so that's that's kind of building in some consistency. And then it's a lot of um, whole staff communication during these staff meetings of like, look, this is what we want a mass lesson to look like. And, and just being really careful. I think change management is so crucial. Um, and 
I'm, you know, I'm this interloper who's come from another school uh, that doesn't have any pre-existing relationships, being really careful to explain to teachers, I don't expect you to nail this straight away. I have absolutely no interest in admonishing you or tearing you down. I only exist to, to build us all up, you know, rising tide, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And how have you, you found um, teachers responding to that? Really positively, really. I, I'm, I'm exceptionally lucky, Brendan. I, uh, I'm working at, a, at an amazing school with some really passionate staff. Um, yeah, they're very, they're very keen. Uh, they, they know that I'm there for, for the right reasons to sort of, you know, um, ultimately to improve student outcomes. We can't do that without helping the teachers as well. Um, so yeah, look, I, I've, I've been blown away with how, uh, how receptive and how proactive people are as well. You know, I um, I don't don't get many moments to myself. Yeah, you know, I don't have time to eat my lunch because I tend to get people barking and asking questions. But I like mm. it that way. Uh, yeah, it means definitely. that people are bought in uh, and they've got a really uh, a real vested interest in improving their practice. So yeah, um, I'm thrilled, man. Couldn't be happier. Yeah, sounds great. And and so you know, you mentioned a few things that you you're working on at the moment in terms of you know your scope and sequence and um, looking at problem solving, how that fits in. Uh, what are, what other things are you you thinking about? Oh, big question. Um, yeah, the, the the change management piece is um, is really important. Uh, I'm a new leader. I wasn't a, uh, I haven't been a leader until this year, so yeah. um, I'm still a novice in that regard. So yeah. reading, you know, like five levels of leadership, which is something that uh, Steve Cap, the ex principal at Brennan, uh, Bentley West put me onto. Um, that's what I'm doing sort of personally is trying to try to improve my, uh, I guess, my leadership jobs. Um, then beyond that, you know, there's always, you would know, man, there's always something to read. There's always a research paper or a book. I, I tend to avoid the research papers too much because they still, they're like, they're, they're very difficult to pass sometimes. Yeah. So I prefer, I prefer that one layer of abstraction, you know, like, like a, um, like a, a Hendrick or someone to be like, hey, this is what the research says work or an Ollie level, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so it's mostly it's mostly the, the the change management piece and sort of the the driving teacher improvement stuff. So I think most of what's next on my cards is understanding the inco- instructional coaching side of the role um, and um, doing what I can in that space, I guess. Yeah, and so you know, just kind of starting to wrap up our conversation. It's um you know it's been really fascinating talking to you about all this stuff to do with mathematics and um and I I think like one of the things that you said at the start was, you know, you don't consider yourself to be an expert on all of this stuff, but, um, you know, I've spoken to you about this before and, and I, I see, especially in Australian education and, and even when you look at um, things that are happening around the world, there aren't a lot of people that we would really be able to consider as experts in, in primary mathematics. And, and so I think like if we're able to just kind of keep sharing this knowledge and um, you know, whatever we're learning as we go along, um, you know, our own journeys, um, we're able to just build off each other and, and see what we can kind of come up with in the end. Um, so like, you know, you've, you've mentioned a whole bunch of um, resources already, but is, are there any other bits of knowledge or, or um, you know, resources that you think teachers need to be getting their hands on? Yeah. So um, be beyond George Booker's book, um, if, uh, if people don't want to buy, you know, a 600 page textbook, which is nuts by the way, cause it's incredible, but if they don't, um, he worked with uh, um, a lecturer at Griffith University, who I don't think is there anymore, whose name is Dr. Stephen Norton, Stephen with a PH. Um, and so he has a website that you can just Google because it's a really weird URL. Um, and for 10 bucks, you get access to 180 videos. They're all sort of between three and 10 minutes long that essentially go through how to teach everything from about prep to year nine in maths. And he also has a 500 page PDF with all this stuff in it that's completely free. Um, if you are a teacher who is, you know, perhaps um, you're, you're concerned about your own content knowledge or you're concerned about the pedagogical piece, you don't know how to teach something, that would be a really amazing place to start. Um, but I cannot recommend uh, George Booker's book enough. That's uh, Teaching Primary Mathematics, currently in its sixth edition. Yeah, I highly recommend uh, those books as well. And yeah, Stephen Norton's stuff is um, really user-friendly as well. I, th- I think like the videos, the way he's broken them down is quite easy to kind of just scroll through and work out, oh yeah, I'd like to have a look at this one now and um, mm-hmm. you know, see what I can learn. Uh, look, Dave, it's been uh, wonderful chatting to you today. And, and um, you know, I know I'm going to chat to you further in the future about all things to do with mathematics. But um, yeah, thanks for sharing your knowledge and um, I think a lot of teachers will get a lot out of our conversation because you've you've been able to break down um, a lot of those key concepts and considerations that that our primary teachers need to make at the moment. So yeah, thanks for your time today, and yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Brandon. It was a pleasure. Dave's enthusiasm for maths is infectious, and it's clear to see how he's able to consistently produce such strong results. 
My key takeaways were the importance of matching concrete and pictorial representations, such as 10 frames, and their symbolic representation. I love the analogy he used when speaking about maths anxiety and how if he was thrown into a year 11 German class, he would experience anxiety, but we wouldn't call it German anxiety. I thought his suggestion of using bundling sticks rather than base 10 blocks was great, as they are easy to show the bundle of 10 is 10 ones because you can easily separate them. Recapping his maths block, he suggests at least 60 minutes a day. He starts with a 20-minute daily review, including multiplication sheet and a mix of different things taught previously. On Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, that consists of teacher-modelled lessons before the independent practice starts later in the week. He emphasised the importance of pace to minimise the chance of chatter and misbehaviour. I liked his idea of taking staff through a lesson as if they were the students. He also highlighted the need to teach inverse operations. Dave spoke about how he uses low floor, no ceilings approach to differentiate for his class. It feels like there's a real want from Australian educators at the moment for quality maths professional learning. Currently, my most downloaded episode is episode 9 with Karen Zanatopoulos on the science of math learning in research and practice. If you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend that one as well. I'll also be presenting at a primary maths conference with Dave in September, and we're both really encouraged by the fact that it sold out in four days and we're looking to announce another one in October. Next episode, I speak with Dr. Nathaniel Swain, and he will provide all the answers to those frequently asked questions that teachers have about the science of learning. So, that's it from me for today, and as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.